You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. Today, the swan, there are six species, and Angie brought this one up. She made me aware of this, of the trumpeter swan, right? Like, this is a crazy... What can they teach us? Yes, the trumpeter swan is considered a classic conservation success story, which is why I was so excited to share the story on the podcast today. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to Our Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. It sounds like me and my missus. <laughs> no. <laughs> the swan. Oh, this one's a beautiful one. I'm, I'm excited. Oh, the beautiful duet of the trumpeter swan. I mean, it's just uh, iconic sound, beautiful music to my ears. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The sound of love and fidelity and yeah. beauty and yeah. grace. Yeah. It's a- and, and, and 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 you know a, a species for the holiday season. You know, in December we usually pick some of these. And today specifically, this one is special to me in my heart. Um, Angie and I don't talk a lot about our personal life. This isn't our swan song. I was a little worried about that with this one, and it's not. It's not. <laughs> but it is a swan song for me in, in in a sense that I am getting married in a couple weeks. Uh, to my beautiful, beautiful fiance Pippa, um, who I met uh, a few years ago, and I know I've, I've mentioned her name a few times in the podcast. And again, Angie and I don't—you know—we don't talk a lot about our personal lives because it's about the animals. This this whole podcast is about the animals and the people out there fighting for them. And we were trying to come up with a, a special episode for for her and I to celebrate uh, this point in my life uh, at the end of 2022. And I and I had to pick a swan because, yeah, long story short, during the pandemic in COVID, I was in the United States. Pippa is from the UK. She was stuck there. She couldn't fly to the US because of the borders. I couldn't get to New Zealand because the border was shut here. So I moved to the UK for a few months until I could get back into New Zealand. And so Pippa lived on a canal in Northern England, right near Liverpool. 
And every day we'd go for walks and I, and I missed my kids like crazy. It was a very, very difficult time for me. And I fortunately had her by my side and I saw a pair of swans every day. There was, there was a, a male and a female, you know, going up and down the canal every day. And we, we got to feed them a little bit and next to all the Canadian geese that were introduced didn't belong there, but there was some gray geese too, uh, from the UK. And it's just, it, it, it's just a beautiful animal. And I think it symbolizes a lot of her and I, you know, they, they are very dedicated to each other. So babe, this one's for you. This, this is your podcast. And thank, thankfully Angie said, yeah, this would be a great species to do. Are you kidding me, Chris? What a better way to celebrate you and Pip and your marriage here soon. Mm -hmm. uh, I am so happy for you to uh, excited. Uh, this mm -hmm. podcast wouldn't be what it is without Pip. Mm -hmm. She is so helpful behind the scenes and a dear friend of mine now. And so I just, I, I just love you both so much. And this is your swan song together. Uh, it's going to be an amazing life mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as you two uh, grow and evolve together. And yes, and the cool yeah. thing with swans is the divorce rate's really low, right? <laughs> it's less than five percent, so it goes well for us. <laughs> <laughs> it does, and well, and they're just all jokes yeah. aside. They are yeah. just—they're a beautiful bird, and she's a beautiful, beautiful soul. Yeah. I've gotten to know over the years, and uh, you are a lucky man, oh, and she indeed is a lucky woman as well. And so. So John and I and the kids send our love to you too from the bottom of our hearts. We wish we could be with you that day, but unfortunately it's, it's still tough. tough to travel. It's very <laughs> yeah, tough to travel. And tough. yeah, and, and we were separated for quite a while. Uh, the borders were closed to New Zealand. I could get back, but she couldn't come with me because we weren't married yet. Uh, but you know, our, our relationship stood the, the test easily and she joined me earlier this year uh, down here in New Zealand and and just a beautiful place to live. And so we're, we're very excited. Uh, her parents had came last week uh, from the UK and then we're all going over to Australia, which we're going to save for another podcast in a couple of weeks. I'll be talking about that. So I'll be in Australia for a couple of weeks uh, where we get married. So we are excited. And today, the swan, there's six species and Angie brought this one up she made me aware of this, of the trumpeter swan, right? Like this is a, a crazy, incredible conservation success story. Yes. And just another species filled with hope and just another example of a species that uh, humans came together uh, internationally to, to save this bird, the trumpeter swan from extinction there. There by 1933, there were fewer than 70 in the wild that were mm -hmm. known to exist and people came together and breeding programs were started in zoos, reintroduction programs were started. We'll talk about that today. Uh, and then luckily uh, there, there was found to be a, a few thousand of them of uh, trumpeter swans around Alaska's Cooper river. Uh, this is the, uh, a, a pocket that had been found that, uh, also helped increase genetics and then help the population. And because of this collaboration, dedication, and awesome conservation, there's probably over 60,000 wild trumpeter swans today. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's a crazy success story. So it's a good story. Yeah. It's for the holidays. It's to, to celebrate yeah. your love for Pip, mm -hmm. your marriage. So I uh, stay tuned. I think trumpeter swans will, will be a great, a great bird to learn about. Well, it, 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 here's a question I had. So when, when I got to the UK and – you know, I've seen swans, obviously, in lakes in the, in the States. 
And I always wondered, do they fly or how do they fly? Because they are massive birds. So we're going to get there with a little bit of a hook and we'll talk about that. Uh, But what's interesting about the trumpeter swan specifically, it's the largest waterfowl in the world. It's massive. It's the heaviest bird in North America. And Chris, that was just so surprising to me because the swan is seemingly so elegant with that long neck. I just didn't, I didn't know they got that big. Yeah. Yeah. They're big. They're big, big birds. And before we, we, we get there, I just want to say a quick shout out to Brandy for the email. Brandy was a, a student of mine way back there in your neck of the woods in Florida. And she downloaded our podcast and she's like, I didn't know it was you. I heard the voice and I was like, I know this voice because she, you know, <laughs> she was in my class. And then she looked us up and she's like, oh my God, it's Chris or Dr. Mortensen, blah, blah, blah. So she sent an email. So I just wanted to give her a shout out and a shout out to all of our Patreon supporters. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, the organization that we cover at the end, I cannot wait to send them some money this week. So thank you for supporting us. Again, a cup of coffee a month uh, supports us in conservation. So thank you very much. When we started down this road, Angie, Swan, I, I, the, especially the one I saw in England, you know, the mute Swan is the, the prototypical one that I always saw kind of with the, the, the black around the face and the, and the orange beak. Now I will say down here in New Zealand and in Australia, we have the black swan. And so when I go do birding with Jesse, you know, we see tons of black swan everywhere. Uh, they were introduced to New Zealand, but then some made it some vagrant populations made it over on their own. So they're considered a native species to New Zealand. You have the black neck swan from South America. Then you have the whooper and tundra swans. And then this massive trumpeter swan that you're going to describe for us. Ah, uh, the trumpeter swan. It's beautiful. It's all white, uh, except for this very distinct and I think classy looking black bill. And along with the black bill, it does have black feet. Uh, as well. And then, of course, when the trumpeter swan opens its mouth, it's the pink red in color, as you would expect. However, there's this tiny little pink or red line on the bill that's almost known as like a grin line. It looks almost like the bird is uh, smiling. So there is a small percentage of trumpeter swans that have a subtle light gray white tint to their feathers instead of the striking pure white. And then I did notice too, and I think it's more prominent on the males than the females, but sometimes during breeding, they can uh, have a little bit of a rust or a slight brown, just highlights, if you will, in their feathers of their head during breeding season. Uh, But in general, they're stunningly white uh, with the black bill. And and then of course, the cygnets, uh, the offspring, that's different. We always heard of the ugly duckling that yes, turns into yeah, a swan. Yeah, yep, yep. yeah that, that, that myth or that story is is true uh, because cygnets, just like most baby birds, are, are not the most attractive. <laughs> no, because they're, they're not. They're not. They're born like mostly naked yeah. and their eyes are all swollen and their eyes are all big and shut. Uh, and so the cygnets, when you see them, they are going to be a gray, light gray to dark gray in color. And gradually over time, this ugly, quote unquote, duckling, this ugly 
swan offspring become this the beautiful trumpeter adult swan. And it takes a couple of years, usually around age two. Most of their feathers have turned white, except for a few around the head. They're gorgeous. I mean, they're gorgeous birds. They are. Mm -hmm. I mean, most birds are when you really start to look at them. But these ones, I mean, swans are elegant. Yeah. And and we're going to talk about their long necks uh, Mm -hmm. as far as some of their morphology in their body. uh, Do they fly? How they fly? uh, What do they use these long necks for? Like the Mm -hmm. giraffe of the of the waterfowl. (laughs) Yeah. What really separates, I think, the uh, the the trumpeter swan from the other species of swans that I was studying is the trumpeter has a very long neck, and it's straight. So when you see them on the pond swimming, their necks are held very erect and very straight. Mm-hmm. So between their size, their straight necks, and the black bill, that should give you give away that it's a trumpeter swan. Where most of the other species of swan carry their neck often in more of like an S shape when they're just swimming along. So very elegant, very regal. The trumpeter is beautiful. And very big. I mean. And very the, big. Well, I had no idea. Yeah. I mean, just in length, they up to five feet or 165 centimeters. And, uh, you know, some some males, the larger ones can get close to six feet in total length. Now, when you look at the wingspan, that could get up over eight feet or 250 centimeters or two and a half meters. That's a massive, massive wingspan. You know, we're talking condors, you know, getting up there with some of those large soaring birds. Well, and I heard there was a record of 10 feet, two inches Mm -hmm. and a weight of 38 pounds. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, typical weights, 20 to 30 pounds or up to over 13 kilograms. But that's still... When we cover birds, I'm always amazed at how light they are. That's because impressive. Yeah. To fly. So how does a 30-pound or a 38-pound swan fly? Can they fly? We'll get there. But it they are an amazing, amazing bird. Now, when we talk about range, like I said, of the six species, the, the mute swan, which I'll just really quickly, they're Eurasian. Right, so that's why I saw them in the UK. Even though they've been introduced, uh, portions have been introduced to the United States. Uh, a very small population here in New Zealand. I read there was a small population in South Africa and Japan, but generally Eurasian. But the trumpeter swan, specifically, this is North America, right? Like we opened with, where mm-hmm. they're almost hunted to extinction. When you look at where they are, like Angie said, there w- there was a a remnant population discovered. In Canada, thank goodness, because yeah. that low population, you know, at less than 70, you said like 60, 50, 60, 70 birds was mm-hmm. around Yellowstone. Mm-hmm. Breeding, they are up in Canada, Alaska. Uh, and then winter, they go to British Columbia, Washington, and then central United States, you know, north of Arkansas, uh, Missouri, those areas they will migrate to. There are some year-round populations around Yellowstone, some in Oregon, but generally uh, they'll migrate just a little bit north. So again, I guess, you know, they don't walk there. I guess they fly there. So that answers that question, but we'll get to how they fly. But I'm bumped. (laughs) There's your answer. It's like, oh, that's a long walk for those swans or a long swim. But um, they, they do migrate a little bit, but not as great as you see in some of these other species. No, and I was actually reading that in Yellowstone, as of 2018, there's only two pairs of swans. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah, they have not bred in years. Uh, 
and researchers think that the the park's population loss uh, is due to flooding and just habitat change because of yeah. climate change. Yeah. yeah. So in general, there's three populations, uh, three well-known survey populations of trumpeter swans. There's the Pacific Coast group that Chris mentioned uh, in Alaska. And then there's Alaska, Western Canada area. And then there's the Rocky Mountain. And then there's the interior populations. So overall, all three of those populations have definitely increased. But we definitely need to keep our eye on certain populations because they are not doing well for various reasons. And I was really surprised to learn uh, that in Michigan, there is a very active trumpeter swan population. I, I have never seen one in the wild. I was chased by mute swans uh, <laughs> as a child on a pond nearby by my, near my house. And that's, uh, yeah, actually, we'll talk about their behavior when it yeah. comes to breeding. Uh, yes, yes, because trumpeter swans, swans in general, uh, the males during breeding season are very territorial. They're jerks. And- I, I watched them. They're jerks. <laughs> they are. I watched them. I'll get, I'll chime yes, in. Yes. Yeah. It, but I, I have only been attacked by a few species of birds. And a few <laughs> weeks ago, I talked about the double yellow headed, the parrot that, uh, bit my finger, uh, tequila, yeah. the, mm-hmm. uh, double yellow-headed Amazon parrot, but I've also been uh, chased by a rooster. Uh, <laughs> yes, I that. Somewhere you talked about that. And then Muscovy ducks uh, <laughs> are some of the worst. And I, and of course, between the ro- rooster and especially the Muscovy ducks, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, that used to care for uh, the Indian Boundary Zoo, which was a subsidiary of Lincoln Park Zoo. I told my coworkers, when these ducks kill me, please, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> please throw my body into <laughs> Tiger the, uh, yeah, well, the, oh, yeah, I would yeah, work with hoof stocks. So it's yeah. at least like the oryx yard, they have horns yeah. or the talking yard, right? I mean, yeah. please. Uh, but yes, so, so roosters, we haven't, we have not covered chickens on the podcast and we need to, because yeah. I love hens. Oh my gosh. Yeah. They are so, mm-hmm. so wonderful. Such big personalities. Roosters, oh boy, uh, I have a different relationship with them. And then the Muscovy ducks, I don't know if we'll ever cover those guys. They uh, definitely are very territorial and, fun- <laughs> and funny. They are super yes. silly. Yeah. Uh, but yes, and swans. So I'm kind of excited today that we get to talk about a species that I definitely ran, you know, ran, I booked it out of there as a little kid and luckily didn't trip and then die. So uh, yeah. Well, and they're brave. I mean, they're brave. Oh, it's- Oh, super brave. And I also uh, did a little um, interview with my buddy, Andy. Uh, He's my bird nerd specialist that I always talk about whenever we do a bird podcast because he was a a bird expert, Mm -hmm. zoological manager uh, at the zoo. And yes, he has lots of interesting stories about swans and their aggression and things that they will kill during breeding season. Yeah, so we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll definitely talk about that as well. But sorry about that little sidetrack. What I <laughs> want to men- mention with Michigan is, uh, interestingly enough, researchers there uh, say that the, the trumpeter population has declined uh, as of recently because of mute swans. Yeah. So mute swans, as you mentioned, are Eurasian, mm-hmm. and they've been introduced to the North America, and they're all over. And they basically compete for a similar habitat, and they uh, can survive off of less food, and they don't need as much of a runway for flying and landing and that kind of thing. So Michigan is working with some uh, some removal of the non-native mute swans in yeah. order to help the native trumpeter swans yeah 
Yeah, and the tundra, right? The tundra swans come down too, don't they? I think the smaller mm-hmm. uh, swan species. So, yeah, it, it, it's it's interesting when you you start seeing all these d- different animals and the complexity. And that's what I wanted to kind of get into a little bit today about talking about conservation and how complex it can be. But but yeah. swans are important. I mean, these are very important aquatic herbivores. That, oh, yeah. absolutely. Uh, I mean, before they become the aquatic herbivores, when they're younger, when they're cygnets, they actually eat a lot of insects. Mm-hmm. So they can help contribute to controlling that population. As trumpeter swans or swans in general are eating, uh, they dig around a lot to get to the, the, the roots and the tubers of these aquatic plants. And so they dig up holes and they basically supply a lot of valuable nutrients by almost acting as like a rototiller to uh, to other plants in the area and then of course help fill the niche with the other invertebrates and then small fish and then up the food chain of course yeah yeah i mean they're they're you know and then they're also prey prey item for certain species too especially when they're younger but you know one of the things they do is is nutrient nutrient recycling in these aquatic ecosystems and that's that's you know they defecate their feces in there helps keep some of that in balance but angie i this i i didn't give you any hints to this what i wanted to talk about today and and because i'm running into this here uh down here in new zealand and with work down here this this came up a few weeks ago and i actually was talking to jesse about it i was just i just thought it was just so fascinating that some of our ecosystems here are really getting out of whack due to really invasive species. And I know anytime we talk about a New Zealand animal, I give some more backstory about how introduced rats, mice, possums, hedgehogs, stoats, weasels, cats, feral cats have all just decimated native bird populations. Uh, and since humans have arrived in New Zealand nearly 700 years ago, we've lost about 42% of our native wildlife. You know, we lost the moa, the host eagle, New Zealand pelican, the laughing owl, or what the uh, Maori call fakau, many others. And so what I'm trying to get at is they have driven these birds from a lot of our native areas where birds don't feel safe to roost or nest in certain areas of the country. In turn, 130 bird species have been introduced to New Zealand to include mute swans, you know, a small population, but sparrows are everywhere. Starlings are everywhere. California quail just saw two yesterday. Pheasant heard one this morning. Minas, we see them everywhere. Canadian geese are a nuisance here, been introduced. And these introduced birds are completely, competing heavily with native birds. Okay. So I, in our Kakapo episode, I talk a little bit about this in episode 279. Fascinating, fascinating uh, story uh, and how we're trying to bring them back the flightless parrot. So you have all these pressures, right? On all these, these areas. So what we're doing in New Zealand, and sometimes I, I post this on social media, you can go on our Instagram account and I've gone to the sanctuary mountain where it's, it's the largest predator-proof area of hectares in the world, right? Where we're keeping out all of these mammal species. And 
the New Zealand government's goal is to be predator free by 2050 by reducing a lot of these stoats weasels throughout the country. The problem is in these areas we're running into, and I'm just going across, you know, running into this at work with uh, one of my colleagues, is you have too many birds in some of these areas. So just south of me is a native reserve with predator-proof fencing. And it's working so well that we have too many birds at the lake roosting because all of those, all of that feces is getting into the waterways in this lake. And the water's now toxic and E. coli levels are off the charts. And what it is doing is it's it's killing off native insects and plants. And so what the, the colleague I'm working with, they're looking at non-invasive ways of trying to drive some of the birds out because there's just too many. There's just too many birds pooping in the lake and it it's killing off fish and everything. And they're there because they just know it's a it's safe, safe spot. It's safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no predators, so it's a safe Good area. Good for them. Yeah. <laughs> Smart, right? There's a lake where Pip and I go walking, and, and there's signs everywhere. It's like, do not go in the water. I didn't even know until this came up a few weeks ago and work in a meeting that it's because of so many birds. And there's thousands of birds at this area where they've – in the area around it, there's a lot of trapping and, and poisoning and stuff to keep the predators away. So the birds flock to these areas where there are not predators. So this plan, it, it came out in the news a few weeks ago, and the, the, you'll never guess what their plan is. And this, the researcher I'm working with, he was looking at non-invasive techniques, something totally different that showed some efficacy and, and they're going to use it, but they have to do multiple strategies to kind of discourage that many birds from roosting here. So what they're going to do, Angie, and this, this, I just, I was like, what? The plan now is to introduce 50 ship rats into the reserve and hoping that it pushes birds away. <laughs> so, oh my goodness. Okay. So, uh... so it's, this is the department. They, they because I mean, this, I guess they're e- studying this stuff, but I this just ecosystem. About- is on the collapse. It's about to collapse. All the plants going to die off. The whole, the water, the lake will die. All the insects are dead. It's, this is a last ditch effort to save this lake. And so the plan is now they're trialing it is to introduce 50 rats into this predator proof area. So the rats can't get out. They're there in hopes that they'll climb up the trees and drive some of these birds away and they go find somewhere else to roost. It's it's crazy and and keep us posted. I yeah, I mean, you read what they're skeptical. saying in the press, just, mm-hmm. and and they're they're like we're 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 at the point where we need to find ways to ba- find balance, balance, right. and, and and that's that's my whole that's, that's, take that home is, message mm-hmm. is we need to find balance in these areas and. We're running into problems. We can't even, we didn't even foresee this, right? You couldn't foresee it. You think you're setting up this protected area for birds. You're thinking, great, the birds are going to do really well. The problem is some of the native birds are are doing well because of this, but so are the sparrows. So are the starlings, all these other Mm -hmm. birds that Mm -hmm. um, don't belong here and compete and crowd out native species like our little silver eyes and our other songbirds. 
So the the whole take home point of this is, this is what happens when an ecosystem like there in Michigan with the mute swans that you were talking about, the trumpeter swans, gets out of balance. And this is why I, I think what it did for me, the story, again, it 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 that fire in me burned a little hotter. Okay. You know, because this is just one little microcosm on the planet, one little area of New Zealand where you're probably seeing this stuff all over, you know, and, um, you know, when nature gets out of balance, you start to, to, to run into problems. So anyways, I will update everybody in about a year from now. I'll try to see if I can remember, have Angie hold my feet to the fire with that. We'll cover <laughs> well, a species here in New Zealand and, and we'll revisit and see how this, this, this nature area is doing. But I absolutely, Chris, and I think this is a story to watch. And we've talked about how complex a lot of these issues are and reintroduction and or conservation. Uh, they're they're tricky. And I think the really critical component is to make sure that there is data and that data is being shared with other places that are because trying to do this because we are living in real time with a mm-hmm. lot of this conservation and reintroduction sciences. And so it's not going to be perfect and it mm-hmm. is very complicated and there's not going to necessarily be a one size fits all answer for every species in all different habitats. But I think we can learn from some of this uh, groundbreaking conservation with your predator proof fence that you guys are doing mm-hmm. over there in New mm-hmm. Zealand. And so all data is good data. And sometimes you might learn, Ooh, we shouldn't have done that. Um, or like, okay, this really worked. So yes, definitely keep us posted. Yeah. I just, I, I had no idea this was going on. And then I talked to Jesse and Jesse's like, Oh yeah. Cause you know, the, the zoo and working with the conservation organizations around our area. And he's like, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a big problem there. And, and then I thought about the lake. I walk around with Pip and I'm like, Oh God, don't let the dogs drink out of there. And you know, it's, it's, you know, the Canadian geese, again, invasive species here. Of course. They're a big problem, fouling up waterways. It's just a headache for our Department of Conservation to deal with. But anyways, just to wrap that all up, I think we should take a quick break and we're going to come back with some fun stuff. And I cannot wait to talk about how these things fly. So we'll be right back. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what? (laughs) Anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. All right, we're back. 
Uh, evolution. I mean, some interesting stuff in here. Uh, you know, I always love that birds are dinosaurs, uh, you know, relatives of dinosaurs. You know, you see it. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Walking Archaeopteryx, around. Archaeopteryx, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, but uh, the class is aves, you know, with our swans, 10,000 species of birds, plenty for us to cover. The Anciniformes is the order. This is our waterfowl. So our last one was snow geese, which we did which was episode 260. I think we covered that last year. The uh, waterfowl, 180 species, three families. So you have the Ancinera today, the magpie goose, and the Anhemidae, which is the three species of screamers, which I'm going to remind people about because we got to cover these birds. And then the Anatidae, which is where most of them are, 170 species of duck, geese, and swans. Again, the screamers, I... I'm falling in love with these things. South American bird. Uh, there's the horn screamer, the southern screamer, the northern screamer. The group derives its name for its far carrying cry. So do yourself a favor and YouTube it. <laughs> the screamer. It's got to love birds. You're welcome. Yeah, you're welcome. It, the swan family is Anna today, which is 43 genre, 174 species. So this is again the, the large one. Uh, swans and geese. Uh, you have the Cygnus, which is the true swans. That's who we're covering today. Six, seven species. There's one in there that really isn't a swan. The Anzer, the gray geese and white geese, and then the Branta, the, the black geese. So uh, fun, fun birds. The mute swan name is Cygnus, which is a genre, the genus, uh, Buccanisaur. And within the Cygnus, you have the whooper swan, the trumpeter swan, the tundra swan. Now, that one that is it a swan, is it a goose, is the Coscaroba swan from South America. And really, they believe it's more of a goose than a swan. It, it's kind of an in-between. And really, there's a lot of debate going about this one. It's kind of it's beautiful. It looks like a, I could see where it looks like a goose and I could see where it looks like a swan. They really think this is like that missing link between swans and geese. Oh, cool. Yeah, the intermediary, intermediate, the middle species. So it's kind of a a both, but it it really is more of a goose. So it's not a true swan. Birds emerged Jurassic period 160 million years ago. Geese-like birds or swan-like birds uh, after the last mass extinction 60, 65 million years ago. And the, the Vegevidae was really the, the first water birds that survived through that extinction and then gave us the waterfowl that we have today. The swans themselves, really, the we do know a little bit about them, especially because a lot of them in North America. So that's where a lot of this uh, people out in their backyards or, or scientists out there digging up bones about 20 million years ago. And... They spread out through Eurasia and the Northern Hemisphere uh, until about 5 million years ago. When the black swan like came down to Australia, we don't know. We don't know when that happened. Or the, the South American black neck swan, we don't know when that happened. But it was somewhere after about 5 million years ago. The current iterations, the mute swan, the oldest fossils we have are about 15,000 years but they're much older than that. That's just what we have now. Uh, but, you know, these birds have been around for millions and millions of years. 
The black swan in New Zealand, like I said, was first introduced in 1864. Again, when the Europeans came and said, oh, this is such a great idea. We should introduce all of these animals. No, terrible idea. But they were one that was introduced. But then some vagrants flew in, like the barn owl. Now the barn owl is a native species to New Zealand because they flew in. The vagrants established populations, so they're actually recognized as native, not invasive. Now, the interesting, the mute swan is more closely related to the black swan and the the whooper, trumpeter, and tundra swan are all very, very closely related uh, genetically. And then you have the black neck swan, which is kind of an offshoot of all six of them, kind of okay. its own little species or subspecies uh, there. Now, I did find the giant swan. I knew it. I was waiting for it. <laughs> I did cover this in the snow goose episode. It was a, a swan slash goose. And again, okay. I don't know if you remembered. Can you guess where a giant swan would live? Flightless. I'll give him that. That'll give you a, a hint. It's it's one of those theories that we probably need to revisit at some point because I, I can't remember what species we covered this in. A giant fight. Uh, a giant. A swan. giant flightless swan goose. Uh, would live in Canada. No, no, no. They'd get eaten. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I mean, I guess we have flightless giant birds, but... New Zealand. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's an island. Indonesia. An island in the Mediterranean. <laughs> we'll be here all day. We'll do the whole world. I was going to say, I would never, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, oh, there's another species we covered, an island in Mediterranean. So remember the gigantism that we talk about, the islands? Yes, definitely remember that. And dwarfism. And dwarfism. It's, it's, mm-hmm. yeah, we got to cover it again in a, in a species. I'm going to put that in my head and we'll, we'll cover it, but. A dwarf species somewhere, like a dwarf mongoose or something, and and see where they originated from. Six to nine million years ago, weighed fifty pounds, stood you know one and a half meters. It was massive, and they did find fossilized bones um, back then. So you could almost stand eye to eye with a large swan. And where was this? In oh, an island in the Mediterranean. It was okay in the island. Yeah. Okay, Mediterranean. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, moving on with facts because we got to get to flight and all that fun stuff. Uh, in the wild, swans live about 12, 14 years, but under human care, up to 30 years. That's kind of what I found. Yeah, the oldest uh, on record I found was 33 years old under human care. And we have to keep in mind, too, that young trumpeter swans, uh, they have survival rate estimates between 40 and 100%, depending on where they live and what the predation is like in the area. But once swans become adults, their survival rate is pretty good. It's 80 to hundred uh, percent. There's not a lot of predators that are going to mess with a full, a full grown trumpeter swan. Okay. Question for you. How did you outrun that swan? Did you outrun that swan or did it get you? <laughs> <laughs> it did not get me. Uh, I did not trip. <laughs> and a lot of times they will just chase and bluff and then yeah. they don't want to, they don't want to go too far from the nest. In, yeah. Uh, so yes. I, 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 <laughs> <laughs> okay. Do you know how, how many miles per hour the fastest human is? I, we've covered this before. Oh, we have. Um, okay. Let me see if I could, uh, is it like, 
15 miles an hour? No, okay, so Hussein Bolt is like 27 miles per hour, the fastest he's ever been, I think. Okay. For a brief sprint. Okay. Swans can run, uh, trumpeter swans can run about 22 miles an hour. So oh. you must have been sprinting like Hussein Bolt. Yeah, I was little. I was <laughs> I was faster. Uh, I was on the track team, I think, in seventh and eighth grade. This would have been before that, though. Uh, so, but I, I, yeah, no, I don't think I can run 22 miles an hour. I think uh, I just got lucky. Like Dodge a lot of these weave, birds yeah. chose to like allow me to live. And so, which is good because I made it here today and I get to do this podcast mm. and everything else. Great. That um, is wonderful. crazy fast though it is fast it They're is fast, fast. especially for yeah. that big of, big of a bird yeah 22 miles an hour now can you out swim them yes i think you can they 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 go about 1.6 miles per hour paddling and humans can swim like three to five miles per hour in the water so right just- like i said as long as long as i'm not um <laughs> as long as i'm not doing the butterfly because yeah. that that stroke i'm not very good at uh all right. so all right, so do you want to talk about how these things fly? Yes, please. It okay. is incredible. Okay, so before we got rolling, I told you my story. So I, I let it just it just dawned on me. I'm, of course, you think they fly, right? Like they're a bird. Of course, they fly. I'm just like, have I ever seen a swan fly? And I was like, no, I've always seen them just like paddling around lakes. Good point. Always on the water. Yep. And I mean, they they have like twenty five thousand feathers. And it's outer skin. So they have a lot of feathers. I don't, we'll maybe talk about molting here in a second. But I just was like, okay, wow. I, I watched the geese, the gray geese in front of Pip's house take off. I mean, I've seen Canadian geese take off all the time. And I was like, okay, dude, when am I going to ever see a swan fly? So all of a sudden I hear this. And I was like, what in the heck is that? I use a different word. And I look, and it's the swan taking off. Chris, I I I, I stopped paying attention for a second. Can you? <laughs> what does it like, sound like again? Was like, that was a amazing. Slow build up. It's like no, no. And it's like so loud. And you're watching them. <laughs> Your face, why you do that? So priceless. <laughs> it's gangly. They're gangly, and they're paddling so fast with their feet. And then all of a sudden, they just boom, and they finally catch flight. And and they take off, and you're like, "Holy smokes!" There's a swan flying. Uh, it was it was amazing. I was like, "Wow!" I will say that the time it was right before I I left for New Zealand. Uh, I was able to watch a family take off and do training Aww, flights with fun. about five or six of them. So the parents would take off, and the young would follow. And they would just circle around and, and right over this hill because we that's all we did was we just did a lot of walking. Um, there's a big lake behind uh, the canal. And they would be circling just overhead and then they would go land in the lake for a while. And then at night they'd end up in the canal with a bunch of them. So they do fly. If you could ever watch them take off, it is hilarious. It's, it's amazing. Um, they generally fly up 20 to 30 miles per hour. If they get a tailwind, they can get 50 to 70 miles per hour. So that's like 35, 30 to 35 kilometers per hour. And then and then they can reach up to heights up to 8,000 feet. So they can fly very Whoa, high. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. And well, Chris, the trumpeter swan is a beautiful swan in flight because they fly with their neck outstretched. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's just beautiful. That long, straight neck. Oh. Mm-hmm. And then... 
I think it's important to note, besides all of your amazing sound effects of them taking <laughs> off, yes. you're not kidding. Like it is, yeah. it is a process, and that is that is one of the reasons too that they have specialized ponds and waterways and areas that they that they tend to live in and breed in because they need a hundred yard runway. Yeah. To take off. Yeah. I mean that's. I mean, yeah, you know, they need to be that that's some space, right? Yeah, for a bird. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we're used to seeing birds just take off or even ducks, you know, a little bit and they're up and gone. But this is like a jumbo jet taxiing, revving up the engines, and then they're off. And it's something to see. It is something to behold. It's beautiful. Now, what's interesting is in the summer, so maybe. That's why, I don't know, you see them and they don't fly. So they go through a molt. It takes about six weeks. And it takes about a year to replace all their feathers. But during those six weeks, like when they lose a lot of their feathers and they're molting, they can't fly. So they're, they're stuck. They're, they're ground bound in, in water. So I thought that was, that was very, very interesting. Well, Chris, uh, what time of year do they typically do this molt? Yeah, so it's in the summer. Uh huh. So uh, it's after probably nesting season or the end of nesting season. So typically they wouldn't be flying around then either. So they're they're not. You know, they're definitely not um, uh, migrating anywhere, and the babies are really young and they can't fly yet. Yeah, and I wonder if the uh, the molt is prepped for uh, these new feathers for the big migration because oh, probably yeah. most trumpeters are migratory birds. So mm-hmm. when the weather starts to get cold, uh, depending on ex- the range of where they're at, that can be anywhere from October to November, they start migrating southward. And the reason for this is because while well, the weather is cold and also they're moving to areas where there is water that's not freezing over uh, so that they can, of course, continue to look for their vegetation and their habitat that they're comfortable in. And so, Chris, that's something else I think would be a beautiful sight to to see is as uh, trumpeter swans prepare for their migration, they'll often gather in areas near large open waters or inlets of moving water. And as the swans begin to migrate, they'll fly off in these beautiful V-shaped flocks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I just that that would be a cool sight to be seen. I know of swans, like wow. And and we we did cover the V-shape is really. Uh, they do it because aerodynamically, right? And the lead bird is the one taking a lot of the the wind resistance. The ones in the V have less resistance uh, with that. And then they, I remember this in the geese episode, and then they would alter position. One would take over and then another one would switch out. But it's just, a, my migration is fascinating. And I think it's the Arctic turn. It's one of the ones that goes pole to pole. You and I will cover at some point. And how do they do it? Like, how do they do it? It blows me away every time. Yeah, Chris, that is definitely a bird to put on our list. But but the trumpeter swans in Michigan, where I'm from, they're smart. They do go a little bit, not too far south, but they definitely go south of Michigan, uh, a little south of Ohio or into uh, North Arkansas, that area. So uh, I I definitely don't, don't blame them about that. There are a few pockets of populations, it looks like, in 
the Idaho, like the northeast corner of Idaho, mm-hmm. and then some in Oregon that do stay year round. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. it'll be interesting to see as climate change is unfolding, uh, how that interferes or changes the trumpeter swans migration patterns throughout the years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We know it's it's having an effect on a lot. And I mean, it's just, you know, a lot of it goes back to diet, to nutrition, mm-hmm. because they need food. And, you know, these are aquatic herbivores. But like Angie said, they sometimes will eat insects, especially when they're younger. Uh, you know, they eat all sorts of pondweed, algae, duckweed, all plants. They eat, In the winter, they eat berries or sometimes grain crops. Um, so pretty varied diet. Yeah, roots and tubers, stems, leaves, they don't care. Uh, they, they they like all the different parts of the plant. And uh, they'll even visit agricultural fields to look for leftover crops or grain that may have spilled. So they can be very flexible uh, as far as what type of uh, vegetation they eat. But I do have to say one of my favorite videos I watched this week, besides, of course, the trumpeting and the vocalizations of the trumpeter swans, was a trumpeter swan foraging yeah. in a pond. <laughs> is that, is this, I was going to ask you, is this because, is this why they have the long necks? Does it help? I, yeah. I think so. I, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I'm not a, yeah. definitely not a swan or a bird expert or an evolutionary biologist, but that's that makes sense to me, right? The that because the way that the trumpeter swans or swans in general feed is by tipping forward and reaching their long neck underwater to skim the bottom for vegetation for different plants, uh, and and that's when they're they're just mucking up the water there, looking around. So when you're looking at them eye level with the water. You're just seeing their their tail feathers. They're little. They're big. I should say they're big white tail feathers, uh, just sticking out, moving a little bit as they skim the bottom with their bill. So it's just a sight to be seen. And uh, and of course you can see ducks doing it and on your mm-hmm. local pond. It's uh, that's how a lot of waterfowl uh, look for food. But something about this big swan. <laughs> tail feather uh, in the air is is pretty hilarious because they're they are big birds so when they tip forward it's uh it's a sight to be seen that's for sure yep 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 and like you said when they're adults not a lot of things uh, will will go after them young ones foxes raccoons wolves sometimes will will pick off the younger ones but generally when they're they're big they're safe question do they eat small children because <laughs> they're chasing you, but leading to, to other behaviors. Answer, it's possible. <laughs> no, no, it's possible, but they, they are supposed to be really intelligent. Like we, you know, my experience, we'd walk Arlo, our big black lab. He's soft as all get out. He's the softest thing ever. He's just super sweet and kind. And the big male would be like, he'd be up near the fence line right off the canal and he would just wings and and he would growl you know we'll get to some of the maybe some of the um vocalizations he was not afraid of arlo at all you know he's like you know big dog get away and arlo would would like oh you know and shy away from him but they're really intelligent right they they have a good memory absolutely chris and once again i can account for how territorial they can be (laughs) during breeding season in fact not only are they territorial, but they can be pretty aggressive 
and violent to other swan competition uh, or other animals. So keep Arlo and Willow away Mm. when you're walking them. Really anything that invades their space. Uh, And there's definitely reports of trumpeter swans inflicting damage on other swans and uh, creatures that dare to get into their territory. And you'll know that a, a trumpeter swan or a swan is pretty upset because they will hiss very, very loudly in, in head bob to warn you. And if you don't back away, they will then uh, run at you with their wings spread. And their wings are really powerful. So they'll, they'll batter their predators with their powerful wings and also their feet. And this is mm-hmm. on land. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's been reported that trumpeter swans have managed to uh, – beat predators that are equal to their size, uh, including a coyote. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, of course, my buddy Andy uh, was sharing stories with me about the Lincoln Park Zoo trumpeter swans. And, of course, I always love to do a little quick sidebar about Lincoln Park Zoo. That's where I got my start as a zookeeper. I didn't work with swans during my tenure at Lincoln Park Zoo. But, interestingly enough, the trumpeter swan was actually the first official animal of the Lincoln Park Zoo when they opened, I think, in the late 1800s. Oh, wow. It was a, mm-hmm, they were, uh, it was a breeding pair. It was a gift from Brookfield Zoo, the mm-hmm. neighboring zoo in um, the greater Chicago area. And so the trumpeter swan uh, just has a, um, a really big part of Lincoln Park Zoo's initial start in their story and their logos back in the day. And then they, they had what was called the swan pond. And because of the trumpeter's conservation uh, plight all through North America. Uh, Lincoln Park Zoo was uh, involved pretty early on as far as helping with the conservation effort. In fact, just recently, uh, one of the breeding pairs of trumpeter swans that Andy worked with when he was there uh, produced about 50 cygnets that over the course maybe 10, 15, 20 years that were all uh, released into the wild. So nice. mom and dad uh, couldn't be released, there you go. right? Yeah, that's mm-hmm. conservation in action, yep. And they were released in Iowa by the Fish and Wild, Wildlife Department there. And that's just one pair in, in the most recent years. So this amazing conservation work is just another example of, of how zoos can support uh, wildlife conservation and bringing back these critically endangered species. And, uh, and so... But along with that, uh, Andy was sharing with me that he witnessed uh, the male uh, the male trumpeter swan take down a couple mallards in the pond, and by take down I mean grab them by the neck and drown them. There, I I told you I didn't want to. I, I want to keep this all light and fluffy for for me and Pip, but they're jerks. I watched the Canadian geese family come by, and here comes the big old male, and he's chasing the the baby canadian geese and i didn't see him kill any but they they would duck under the water and swim off and he's looking for them and they're they're mean they can be but they're but they're pretty pretty. they are pretty and this is only seasonally right this is only i mean they have a job yes they are good dads they're good Mm -hmm. husbands very protective they're good bird husbands or good bird dads. I mean, and that that is what they need to do. And so, and, and I think because of their big size, uh, and uh, that's why they can do more lethal damage, perhaps, than a mallard. Because uh, a, a, a male, a male, a male mallard duck is going to be territorial. 
territorial too mm-hmm. during mm-hmm. the breeding season, but it just doesn't pack quite the punch yeah. as, the, as the big, big, big swan, trumpeter yeah. swan. Mm-hmm. But in general, when uh, they're not in breeding season, uh, and my buddy Andy said that they were actually quite lovely to work with. They could, they would even take food out of your hands. I mean, it, once again, it's just this breeding season where you want to stay away. Uh, but in the wild, trumpeter swans, their daily routine will vary depending on what season it is. If it's winter time, they're going to rest more and eat less, um, even after they've migrated. Um, and whereas in the springtime, uh, when they go back to their breeding grounds, they are going to consume a lot of food and also be very active as they prepare for the breeding season. And then in general for the trumpeter swan activity budget, they are going to spend a lot of time preening, which is cleaning their feathers and trumpeter swans are also seen a lot rubbing their bills across, um, the base of their tail feathers because they have an oil secreting gland there. And then they'll take their bill and distribute this oil all over the rest of their body and their feathers as they preen. And this oil will act as a way to help waterproof the feathers. So you'll see that behavior a lot. And when it comes to the social nature of trumpeter swans, they do live in small flocks, typically with members of their own family. And the flock size can vary uh, depending on the season and whether they are breeding or prepping for migration. So you can see a few trumpeter swans together or, uh, man, my Andy, my buddy Andy was telling me he, he got to travel out to Banff, Banff National Park in Canada, where he saw hundreds of trumpeter swans on this gorgeous, on this huge lake together. And he said it was one of the, the most uh, brilliant sights and sounds he's ever seen or heard. So yeah, we see them like when we do our bird counts, it depends where we go. But yeah, I can count up to 50 black swan. So it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. And that's non-breeding season. So I should probably get out there and see if there's all the babies haven't been. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, And of course, we cannot cover trumpeter swans without talking about that iconic, classic vocalization that we opened up with. uh, Because it does. The trumpeter swan sound sounds like a trumpet. It resembles a horn uh, with that very common call. And that trumpeting noise can be heard from long distances. And it's the most common vocalization that they make. I did mention they can hiss and they can vary the calls depending on if they are feeling alarmed, threatened, or courting each other. So that the beautiful uh duet trumpeting that we opened up with the podcast for Chris and Pip, uh, that that's going to be specifically a breeding call between mating pairs. And it's often called a duet because if you listen closely with that beautiful trumpeting sound, the male and female have a similar frequency, but it is almost like they are in unison and they can be hard to tell apart. And that's why the performance is called a duet. So it's just a beautiful sight to be seen. And I think it's, mu- it's music to my ears when I yeah, hear that. They are, they are, they are pretty, they are pretty. Now, the reason I pick this bird is because they do mate for life. Uh, like you said, the dad's very, very territorial. I'm, I protect, yeah, my home, you know, my, my family. Um, that's why I'm here in New Zealand, you know, because of my family. These birds, fascinating they do mate for life right it's that 
divorce rates really low. They call it swan divorce because if they do uh, pair up and they're not successful in nesting, then they will split part ways. But they do mate for life, right? Like, yeah, Yeah, it's rare. Yeah, the the quote unquote swan divorce rate is very, very low. And occasionally, Chris has even been reported that uh, if like a mate does die, that they are so monogamous that they won't even pair up again for the rest of their lives. So just a really, a really, that's loving bird. I, you know, mm-hmm. I always picture the, the two swans where their necks make like a outline of a heart. Yeah. The heart. Shape. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. And the other thing too, Chris is not only are swans or trumpeter swans in general monogamous for life, but they, they form these pair bonds when they're around three to four years old and they stay together throughout the whole year. Uh, they move together, they migrate together. Uh, so, I mean, they're just a very close, close knit family for their whole lifetime. Right. And so it's definitely a story of love and one for the ages, just like you and Pip and Chris, the trumpeter swans, although they're monogamous and they mate for life, they continue their courtship rituals throughout each year during breeding season. So I think that's good advice for you <laughs> yes, and Pip. I will. Uh, I promise. I'll do the when dance. You're yeah. Old and married to always <laughs> continue to do the dance yes, and yes. and keep keep trumpeting for Pip and she'll trumpet back to you mm-hmm. and you can raise your wings and quiver your body and bob your head <laughs> and uh, all sorts of things uh, to uh, to show your love and your dedication. Mm-hmm. But I also thought it's cute for. Uh, not only that they do court every year, even though they're this like old married swan bird couple, but uh, when they start to court and, and it probably has to do a little bit with like the hormones, but they're actually a little shy with each other in the beginning. They're a little flirty. And so the male is a little bit slow to court her. And at first he'll just follow her around the pond and, and see if she allows him to approach, which she may, she may not, she may play a little hard to get. Uh, and then if, if that is allowed in the water, then on land, the male will very subtly try to approach the female. If she allows him, um, they'll basically like touch their breasts together and then walk away and the other thing, Chris, I thought was super cute with the swan courtship, besides the fact that they continue to do it even when they're old married swan birds, is that uh, the, the male is is shy in the beginning and he, uh, beginning of breeding season, he's always testing the water with the female. And so in the pond, he'll he'll follow behind her slowly and see if she like allows him to come near her. And then he does this really cute behavior in the water well, where he'll uh, swim in the direction of his mate and continuously turn his head from side to side to kind of show, mm-hmm. probably show mm-hmm. off his long neck or something. <laughs> uh, and then on land, he'll do the same thing, like subtle approaches. And then if she is tolerating him, then uh, they'll they'll come together and they'll like they'll bring their breasts and their tail feathers together and then if that's allowed, then things will really get rolling and if she's participating and accepting to him, that's when they will really start uh, spreading their wings and head bobbing and of course the beautiful trumpeting sound which in, in which they're named. So their courtship uh, ritual is very romantic and I just love that they do it year to year even though. 
they know who they're going home with. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's date night, you know. It's it date is, night. which is yeah. important. And yeah. I and I I uh John and I should heed our own swan advice as mm-hmm. we uh uh sometimes we'll do date nights where it'll be like eight, eight o'clock when the kids go to bed and we'll just go sit on the sit on the uh on the back porch and and, and have a glass of wine and be like, oh, okay. Nice. Here's our quick little get up and dance, John. Half an hour date, yes, <laughs> yes, and he will, he will yeah, still. Yeah, I know he will. Yeah, um, he will. After after a few glasses of wine, but yes, yeah. still he, he will. He's a good swan dad. Absolutely. He'll, oh, he'll wing flap and head bob, and uh, <laughs> we always trumpet together too. By the end of the night, that's yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. No, no, I yeah, I I love you both, and he's an amazing, amazing man. So. Nesting, you know, I saw it and, you know, how long those eggs incubate and how many do they have on average? Right. So once a beautiful court, elaborate courtship uh, display and, and they are, they know that it's breeding time is among them. uh, The pair will get together for anywhere from 11 to 35 days of building this really detail oriented nest. And so the trumpeter swans will build their nest uh, on a site near the water, uh, usually a couple hundred feet from shore. A lot of times they like to build on pre-existing structures like beaver dams or beaver dens or floating vegetation um, and even man-made platforms. And swans will use the same nest site year after year as long as it's working for them and it hasn't been destroyed by some natural disaster. Uh, but yep, for two to five weeks, both parents are heavily involved with construction, right? So we have, uh, once again, um, a good swan dad and they use different material for the nest. It can be anything from aquatic vegetation to grasses to some sticks and mud and pretty much whatever they can find. And the trumpeter swan nest can be pretty big. It can reach up to 11 feet across, three feet high and, um, about four to eight inches deep. So yeah, it's pretty big. good size. They're big nests there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Chris, this is super cool. So the female will lay about four to six eggs that are incubated for about 35 days on average. Now the incubation is primarily done by uh, the mom, the female trumpeter swan. And this is super unique. Unlike other waterfowl, trumpet, trumpeter swans don't have a brood patch to incubate their eggs with. So instead, trumpeter swans use their feet. They will Mm. cover the eggs with the webbing of their feet and help keep them warm to incubate them. And when the cygnet start to hatch, um, they are, of course, very precocial uh, and dependent on their parents. And the female is a super mom. She like refuses to leave the nest unless Mm -hmm. she's chasing off a predator or something. Mm But the cygnets do develop pretty quickly, and after about 24 hours in the nest, they can start following mom and dad and begin to swim. So they're little, but they can they can get it done. But with the protection and the guidance of both parents. And then what I thought was super fascinating is that the the young offspring have a really close relationship with both of their parents. Uh, and of course the first few weeks, uh, they are extremely dependent on, on them, uh, both in the nest or of course in the water and the young cygnets are able to feed themselves after about two weeks. Uh, and they'll start beginning to fledge around three to four months, but 
with the trumpeter swans, even after the fled fledglings do fledge, they'll spend the first full winter with their parents, um, learning different skills and how to be an adult swan. And so, Chris, I was just really in, impressed with the high parental involvement as far as uh, keeping the cygnets alive. Um, life is tough out there if you're a young a young swan. And so having your parents close by initially on, especially within the first couple months of life, uh, is really, really important. Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, I mean, very defensive, very mind minding the cygnets. And cygnets stick close to the parents when I watched them swimming around. So very attentive. And fortunately of all the six species of swan, they're all least concerned, but they're not, not, it's all great and, and wonderful for them. I mean, they're, they're facing a lot of challenges. I mean, climate change we know is impacting bird populations and Angie's mentioned it a few times, but also water contamination and pollution has been a big, big problem for them. And, and is definitely impacting their numbers. But thankfully, like the trumpeter swan, you know, over 60,000 uh, back from the brink of extinction. So it is an overall good conservation story. We just need to maintain and, and, uh, and we just need to keep our eyes on them and all the other native birds. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they are waterfowl, so they do spend a majority of their life in our waterways, our freshwater systems here in North America. And so I think in that instance, they are a good indication of healthy waterways as well. And so in that way, I think the trumpeter swan is actually a bioindicator species. And, and yes, the trumpeter swan is a, considered a classic conservation success story, which is why I was so excited to share the story on the podcast today. But there are limits to that. And we do need to keep our eyes on them and, of course, protect their habitat, the habitats that they're in and their wetlands. And, and we need to monitor the construction that we're doing in our wetland areas. I know this is a big thing in Michigan that we're having problems with. A lot of our wetlands are being basically urbanized. So, yes, uh, not out of the woods yet, but overall uh, a great story, a beautiful, beautiful uh, tribute to Pip. We'd love you. Yes, Pip. yes, yes. Welcome to the family. Yep, I love her. I love her. And so, conservation tip: I've actually turned, thanks to Jesse, who turned me into a bird nerd. Pip is now a bird nerd, and we go out and we do our bird counts. So you I'm guys asking- are the cutest nerds together. <laughs> I love it. She's like she knows all of her. She's learning all of her native birds uh, here in New Zealand. But we use eBird again. Download it. Use it. It helps scientists. It's it's citizen science. Use the Merlin Bird ID app. It helps you learn the birds native to your area. And then you can use eBird to log their numbers because if you can go out to your waterways and log trumpeter swans or any of these other birds, uh, it helps scientists and like here in New Zealand, Department of Conservation, uh, Fish and Wildlife in the States or wherever you live in the world, helps your lo- local agencies monitor uh, bird populations because they need our help. So again, I urge everybody, everybody, please, please, please get eBird. You'll love it. It, it, Your family will love it. Your kids will love it. Uh, We use it all the time. Now, because we're dedicating this to PIP, I got to pick the organization this week. And the one that I picked is the Trumpeter Swan Society. 
and you can find them on the internet, uh, trumpeterswansociety.org, or you can find them on Facebook, Trumpeter Swan Society. Uh, they have been critical in helping the trumpeter swan come back from extinction. Their mission statement, the trumpeter swan society is nonprofit founded in 1968. Their, our mission is to assure the vitality and welfare of wild trumpeter swans. And they invite everybody to join their vital important mission. And they, they talk a lot about how in the late 1800s, they were hunted uh, to near extinction and the Trumpeter Swan Society was one of the organizations that were critical in helping bring them back from the brink. So check them out, trumpeterswansociety.org, or find them on Facebook. I love these organizations. I They actually, on their Facebook page, have a holiday gift catalog. I know it's a little late, and you can always go on there and, and help them out and help these wonderful birds. But Thank you for bringing it, Angie. Thanks for letting me talk more in this podcast about this amazing species uh, for my partner, uh, Pip and I. So thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Congratulations to Chris and Pip. Uh, and yes. You two are going to make beautiful music together. Yes, we are. Thank you. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.